0: That in order to meet this moment, we have to recognize our California comeback. I think in my time, this is a, a very unusual
1: and a very unique time. What I'm saying about the state today, it's an enterprising, modernizing, pluralizing, unionizing nation state.
2: Hello, and welcome back to the California Nation Podcast. I'm Gil Duran. Most people don't know the name Karen Bass but the Congresswoman from Los Angeles is on Joe Biden's short list of potential vice presidential picks. Bass started as a community activist and physician's assistant. Her activism led her to win election to the California State Assembly, and once there, she rose to the ranks to become the first black woman to lead a state legislature when she became Speaker of the Assembly. Bass said it's surreal to be considered for the vice presidency, and most observers think another Californian, Senator Kamala Harris, has a better shot at getting a nod. But Bass's supporters say her long record of progressive activism and her collaborative style make her the better pick. So, the Sacramento Bee Editorial Board gave Bass a call. Here's our conversation. Thank you for joining us, Congresswoman. Uh, I'm Gil Duran. I'm the California Opinion Editor at the Sacramento Bee. Here with uh, Lauren Gustis, uh, our Executive Editor and President. Marcos Ah. Breton in the uh, Orange uh, Giants get-up and... (laughs) Jack Oman, our editorial cartoonist and deputy opinion page editor. So thank you for
3: taking the
0: time today. You going to make a cartoon of me?
3: (laughs) (laughs) Ma'am, if you become vice president, you're going to have to get used to it, but (laughs) 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 part of the problem.
2: Well, we know your time is is, uh, limited today, uh, so we want to get started right away. And I'll start by asking the first question. What do you see as the role of vice president, and why do you think you might be a good one?
0: Well, uh, and I just have to state for the record, you know, specifics around that have to be referred to the campaign. But I think the role of of the vice president, depending on who is the president, plays a different, you know, is different. But today, in what is happening today, where our country has lost 150,000 people, we have an economy that is in shreds. And we have a administration that months into this pandemic has not come up with a national strategy. So I don't know how President Biden sees the role of a vice president, except for to remember how he was vice president, which is they came into major crises as well. And President Obama wanted him to handle certain things. I know that um, I think that is what is needed in this time for the next vice president. The next vice president needs to one, get her hands, and I can say that confidently, right? (laughs) Get her hands around the pandemic, around the economic and the health and the social side of it. And then it coincides with the whole policing issue that has now raised major questions in our country, which I'm frankly very excited about, systemic racism, inequity, and they're completely linked because the COVID crisis revealed that as well, and the policing crisis revealed that as well. So I think the president and the vice president in this historical period have to be healers to repair the divisions in our country there's also the international side too so what i would hope is that president biden would divide some of that up we have to in the way that the president has torn apart our country domestically he's also shredded our standing
1: internationally
2: thank you and lauren we'll go to you next
1: Thank you, uh, Representative Bass. I'm interested in the edit board has talked a lot about this. Uh, It's an issue in your district. It's an issue up here. Um, You've noted that we have an economy that's in treads uh, and we cannot um, put together a strategy to fight uh, coronavirus effectively. Um, And uh, one of the challenges that has come with coronavirus is how to safely Uh, ensure our students are educated in in our local school districts and I'm wondering in your role how you see opportunities for things to be done differently um, and how we can together put California on a path toward a more equitable experience as we all begin distance learning in just a, a matter of weeks
0: you know i'm so worried about the uh, the education especially when you talk about the achievement gap well my goodness the achievement gap is going to quadruple now and let me just give you a, a, an example of something i'm very concerned about because at least in our state different than some of my colleagues states we do have broadband throughout our state now i actually would raise questions about maybe the central valley and maybe uh, the southern part of our state, there might be some gaps, I don't know. But let's just assume there's broadband access statewide. Number one, not everybody can afford it. And number two, there's this assumption made that all young people know how to use technology. So when the schools shut down, uh, my grandson uh, and stepdaughter were living with me for a while. And so I went to his school to pick up the laptop. Well, he's five years old. So I bring the laptop home and it dawned on me and in in his school, it's um, predominantly uh, immigrant, but, you know, low income uh, folks in general. And it dawned on me, why is there an assumption that the parents would know how to use the computer, number one, but number two, that the parents would even be home to use the computer? So LAUSD is doing something that I think really should be expanded statewide. And that is they're using the television. Now, I don't know exactly how they're, I mean, they're doing some classes on television, but we have to figure out a very aggressive, affirmative way to deal with the achievement gap while we are forced to do this distant learning. And we have to figure out what do we do in those households where the kids, uh, where the parents are essential workers, or the kids are too young to have adapted to technology. Now, maybe by the time they're in middle school and high school, you can say all oh, young people know how to use technology, but not a five, six, seven year old.
1: And what can you do, um, Representative? What can I do now mm-hmm. as a
0: member of Congress? Yeah. Uh, about the most I can do right now is to fight like heck that we pass the legislation here. But let me just tell you, we passed a bill that provides uh, resources to local government and to states in our heroes act we did that two months ago that bill has been sitting over in the senate for two solid months now the republicans in the bill they're putting together they stripped out the money for local and and states so what i can do as a member of congress is to fight for federal resources and one of the things that i do uh, do uh, very frequently in LA is um, the uh, elected officials that all cover the same geographic area. We, we meet periodically to talk about how do we marshal resources. But I mean, I feel good about what's happening in Sacramento, uh, especially compared to what was happening when I was there. But I don't have the same level of access and authority in Congress that um, the state legislators do.
3: Um, Representative Bass, you famously are a convivial person who works and plays well with others, and that's rather unusual in Washington and Sacramento. Um, my question is, and when you were working through the, um, a budget impasse in 2009, when you were Assembly Speaker, uh, uh Kevin McCarthy was your counterpart, do you consider yourself to be someone who's maintaining cordial diplomatic relations with the minority leader at this point
0: oh yeah with Kevin sure yes Kevin and I uh, are more than cordial yes we are friends we help each other um, and also he actually wasn't um, minority leader in '09. he was in Congress by then uh, it was earlier um, when in 09 it was Mike Valines. And Mike Velines and I are still in touch with each other.
2: How do you bridge those political divides when the country is so divided? What's your secret for doing it?
0: You know, I don't have a problem with it because now it doesn't mean I'm always successful. You know what I mean? But right, I mean, I'll tell you what I'm doing right now. And um, when I came here, um, I started a bipartisan caucus on foster care. I look for the issues that there's commonality on it. Again, it might not be that we see things exactly the same. I'm doing legislation now on criminal justice reform. It's bipartisan. Foster care, bipartisan. The policing legislation, excuse me, when we passed it out of the House, and that was no small matter that all the Democrats voted for it. If George Floyd hadn't happened, we wouldn't have had a policing bill. The the Democrats would not have all voted for the bill. And we got three Republicans, two days after tw- after Trump tweeted. Now that almost never happens. Usually when he tweets, that's it. But, uh, but what we're doing behind the scenes is we're still meeting talking about policing. And it's um, a few Democrats, myself included, but the majority of the folks that we're meeting with are Republicans. And the way I manage it is I keep my eyes on the prize. I mean, it is about the issue. Um, and I want to work with whoever it is that I need to work with. I know how to compartmentalize. Um, It might be tough to hear my colleagues go out and preach Donald Trump (laughs) and then come back in the room and meet with me, but that's okay. If we're working on something, then I stay focused on that. I keep my eyes on the prize.
2: Marcos, we'll go to you. Representative, um, what should the government be doing that it isn't doing right now to more effectively protect communities of color disproportionately hurt
3: by COVID-19?
0: Oh, then thank you. (laughs) So let me tell you what I've I've been doing on that. Prior to George Floyd, I was 100% obsessed behind COVID because I just felt like it was getting ready to wipe us out. So I chair the Congressional Black Caucus but I work lockstep with the Hispanic Caucus, the Asian Pacific Islander Caucus, and we call it the Tri-Caucous Caucus Two because now we have two Native American sisters that are part of Congress. So uh, we work lockstep with each other because each of our communities are affected disproportionately. So what we have been working on is to try to get targeted resources. So we ne- there needs to be specific intervention where there's a hotspot. And what I mean by that is, you need to flood the area with testing, with tracing, and with early treatment. Anytime you have a hot spot, that's what you need to do. It's like a fire. You send the fire engines. But every time they talk about black folks, they want to talk about our underlying health conditions. You know, you got diabetes, you had blood pressure, you're fat. It's like, okay, that's all fine, but I don't want to talk about that today. And I always I always say that it's like a house that's on fire. You send the fire engine, you don't send the structural engineer to do an analysis of the foundation. We can talk about the underlying health conditions afterwards, but right now there needs to be the direct intervention. Even in places where it's not necessarily, well, these are communities of color. In LA, you know, they're they just talking about <clears throat> the reason why they think there is a spike is because of the um, garment industry, sweatshops where they did crazy stuff like have cardboard in between workers uh, with, with an open slat, a slot so they could pass material back and forth. So to me, you would have, number one, you would shut those places down or like the meat packing places. But with the, the, the approach of the administration because they don't have a strategy, everything's equal. It shouldn't be equal, everything's equal meaning not much. You need to have concentrated, targeted, resources
2: why did you decide to go into politics and if you had to pick one thing that defines your career what would that be
0: if i had to pick one thing that defined my career when i kind of never thought about it as a career but um it's just it mean it's the lifelong commitment to fight for justice and that has led me a lot of different places because i didn't set out To be an elected official. If I did, I'd have a different resume. (laughs) Uh, But that that just was never what motivated me. So I view politics as way beyond being an elected official. Politics to me prior to 16 years ago was all about community issues. And so in 1990, when the crack cocaine epidemic started in the 80s, and I, I was teaching, I was on the faculty at USC Medical School, I had a very nice gig I probably would have retired from by now. But just like I'm obsessed around COVID now, then I was obsessed around crack and HIV, which we, we called it the mysterious pneumonia that was impacting gay men. And, um, and I, I felt like the Black community was just gonna be devastated by crack. And I was really upset that the only response from society was to criminalize a health issue, an economic issue, and a social issue. So I walked away from my job and started Community Coalition. I didn't have any idea what I was doing, but but I wanted to come up with strategies to address crime that didn't involve incarcerating people. People were addicted, they needed treatment. So I wanted to figure out how to do that. So in the course of that, then I got involved in land use issues that I didn't know anything about. That led me to city council and the county and the state legislative bodies because they controlled land use. And we started working with elected officials like Mark Ridley Thomas, for example. And then when he turned out, we got really worried because all we'd spent all these years working with him and then he was gonna leave and we were gonna lose a lot of the stuff that we had built. During that time, we were also building precinct operations and we were involved in trying to fight against Proposition 209, Proposition 187, you remember those, affirmative action, immigration, three strikes. Um, and so we built that capacity on the ground. And, and uh, Community Coalition, by the way, was deliberately built as an African American Latino organization because that's who South Central is. And, and, um, and that's what led to me running for office. Um, Diane Watson hit me up and said, there were no black women in the state legislature. Miguel Contreras, if any of you uh, remember who he he was, um, most important labor leader in our country. And um, I went to him to hit him up for uh, to buy a table at our annual dinner. And he hit me up to run for the state legislature. And I said, why would I wanna do that? And I went up to Sacramento and I talked to people that I knew who had been elected and they encouraged me to come up. And what they told me was I could work in elected office on the same issues I was working on in the community. So ever since then, I'm still working on the same issues I was working on in 1990. Criminal justice reform, child welfare, but now I have the opportunity to work on foreign policy, which really was always one of my big loves. So now I work on Africa, but I'm sorry that took so long, but it was just kind of important to explain elected office to me is just one arena of politics.
2: Thank you. Lauren, we'll go back to you.
1: Sorry, looking for the mute. Thank you. Um, you know, I'm wondering. You know, we we speak in edit board, and we are honored to speak in edit board with uh, representatives at the state level, at the federal level, um, and this is just another level uh, that potentially is on the horizon um, for you. I have a heart in local journalism. I have um, a stake in this community here in Sacramento, and I believe um, as you so eloquently shared that that most of what we get passionate about is very tangible. It's local. It starts right here, right? Um, so I'm interested in, yes, you, if named, will be discharged to focus on priorities at the discretion of the president, and what about your priorities? You know, where will you um look to make local change in a way that perhaps might not be possible today in your current position
0: Uh, if i had an opportunity to do that i really want to figure out how to put local resources to to build community institutions and um and i am most concerned about criminal justice reform from the point of view of providing opportunities for people who are formerly incarcerated to start their own organizations. I have legislation to do that now, but if I got to work on a a grander stage, um, that's what I would really like to do. I'd like to tackle systemic racism by looking at each of our institutions for discriminatory policies, discriminatory practices, and figuring out how to dismantle and unravel those. Uh, but i'm I'm always interested in building community leaders, community institutions, grassroots institutions. But
3: Vice President Biden is seventy eight years old. He would be the oldest president ever elected and sworn in. Do you feel that you would be ready to step in if need be early in the administration?
0: Well, you know the 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 way I view it is um You shouldn't allow yourself to be selected for this if you don't feel you could do it. I think that's really important. And it doesn't mean that I don't think the notion is very scary. (laughs) uh, Because I think if you don't, I'd worry. I don't care how ready you think you are. You're, You're never ready for that. But I would draw the comparison to California because we are like a country. And boy, do you really feel that when you work on a national level? Um, We are the world's fifth largest economy. And 40 million people, we dwarf all the other states. A lot of people think that the states are kind of more or less, you know, equal. But I mean, even New York is 19 million people. Florida is 20 million people. And I walked into that position and the state of economy, the state of California's economy collapsed on me. And uh, that was a real trial by fire. And I think that with me, I am always willing to step up and do what I'm faced with, but I also know how to gather the best and the brightest around me too. I'm never one that thinks, I mean, not for one second, (laughs) that that I know it all um but i think going through the fires of california not the literal fires the economic fires although that year we had hundreds of fires as well literally working in the emergency room and being in life and death situations with people um i feel like my experiences in my life although non-traditional for anybody <laughs> that's in a position like this have helped me prepare for much bigger levels of responsibility
2: marcos representative um when talking about police reform at the federal level what laws need to be changed or created to make law enforcement more accountable and less dangerous to the citizens
0: Uh, let me just uh, jack just wanted to add in i forgot another area which is foreign policy and um the 10 years i've worked um in doing on the foreign affairs committee focusing on africa but having to pay attention to the entire world uh in terms of policing a few areas one qualified immunity which is the most controversial part of our bill qualified immunity well first of all It is difficult right now to fire, sue, or prosecute a police officer. Qualified immunity, I believe, is why that man, when he was killing George Floyd, was looking straight at the camera with his hand in his pocket. He felt he had complete impunity because the way the law is written right now, it's virtually impossible to sue a police officer. Because the way the law is written right now, it's virtually impossible to prosecute an officer so right now you have to prove that the officer was willfully intending to kill somebody we have in our bill reduced it to reckless now you can be you can be a reckless driver nobody sits and analyzes whether you intended to be reckless reckless is reckless and um and so in firing police officers we've called for a national registry so that if it's a bad police officer, like that guy that killed George Floyd, he'd had, he'd had 17 complaints. The man that killed 12-year-old Tamir Rice had been fired from another department for being mentally unstable and having a propensity for violence. So right now, and I don't know if this happens, it certainly, does, I'm sure it doesn't happen in LA, I'm sure it doesn't happen in Sacramento, it might happen in some of our smaller cities, but these officers that get fired, bad officers bounce from, place to place.
2: You've drawn some criticism for a long-time relationship with uh, Cuba. In American politics, as you know, you're generally not allowed to say anything good about Cuba or the Cuban revolution. What interested you in Cuba back in the seventies and how have your views changed, if at all, over time?
0: Sure. Um, I went, the first time I went to Cuba, I was 19. It was in 1973 And it was the year in which those years there were hundreds of young people that would go to Cuba to uh, harvest cane or or build houses. I went to build houses. And in 1973, if you imagine all that is going on in our country, all the turmoil and all that is going on in the world, the Vietnam War, the independence movements in Africa, all, I mean, uh, yeah, mainly in Africa, but in other countries too. All of that was of major interest to me because I went to a very liberal to radical high school. And so when I was in high school, one of my classmates went to Cuba, she actually cut cane. And so uh, I was always interested in the people of the world. Uh, My uncle was a merchant marine and um, he traveled the world and he would come home and share his journeys with us. And so uh, when I got out of high school, I went to Europe for three months. And I don't know if any of you are old enough, maybe, But uh, during the 70s, uh, young folks would go over to Europe and hitchhike around Europe. I did that and came back and wanted to, and uh, I don't remember how exactly I connected with the trips. Uh, I was in San Diego because I went to uh, San Diego State. And so I went to Cuba and I was interested in all of the Americans I met there in addition to the Cubans because it was a national trip. So it was activists from all around the country, working on all kinds of issues that were there. So that was of interest to me. Now, I mean, I didn't have any illusion about Cuba at the time. I certainly knew it was not a country like ours in the sense that we spent an awful lot of time during those years protesting. I know, I know that people couldn't protest the Cuban government in the way I saw um, you know, the freedoms that we had here. Uh, and then if you fast forward, my interest in Cuba changed. And about 20 years ago, I became very interested in their medical school. They started a medical school that's called the Latin American Medical School. And it's actually, um, there were members of the Congressional Black Caucus that went down to Cuba and they asked the Cubans, well, heck, can we have our kids come down here? So the Cubans started admitting black and Latino students from the United States to go to Cuba to stay there for five years. And to come back here, the only commitment was they had to work in underserved areas. And they came back with no student loans. (laughs) So I started working, number one, to make sure that those students could actually come back and practice here. So while I was in the state legislature, we changed some regulations. It wasn't laws, but regulations so they could practice here. And then over the last, I would say, 10 or 15 years, I've been going down, meeting with the American students, and trying to get them placed here. So once a year, except for this year, of course, I would put on a reception, and I would bring together the clinics from South Central, and I would have them meet the students when they came home for the summers. And um, number one, to encourage them to keep staying in school, but also to show them they would have jobs afterwards. Because the problem is, is that we can't, we don't have enough doctors to work in inner city areas because they got, they have six figure student loans. And so these kids come back with no student loans, at least from medical school, they might have undergrad, but they're in a financial position, they're completely bilingual, and they come back ready to work in our clinics.
2: we have only got a couple minutes left, but I wanted to ask you, does it surprise you to find yourself under consideration for vice president of the United States? And how does it make you feel personally?
0: Well, I'll say one word, and then I'll have to refer you back to the campaign. Surreal is the word. (laughs) My journey, again, I, you know, I mean, some of it uh, I could be criticized for because I did do things like go to Cuba. Uh, I was involved, I mean, I was a young radical. What I describe myself is those young people that are out saying defund the police, That was me, (laughs) and so I didn't set out to say, I wanna be the president of the United States. I wanna be a member of Congress. My entire life has been driven by fighting for social and economic justice. That has been the guiding post that has led me to do a lot of different things. Now, I worked in the medical field because I didn't realize I could make a living and fight for social and economic justice. I had to have a job. And I liked medicine, but uh, it wasn't until I started Community Coalition that for the first time in my life, I didn't lead a double life. My double life was I worked during the day in the hospital, and then at night, I was involved in the community.
2: (laughs) Thank you very much for joining us at the editorial board and on California Nation.
0: Thank you. Thank you very much.